This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, February 3rd. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, public health shifts to individual responsibility in COVID response, Sunnyside faces supply chain and labor delays, county considers deed restriction exemptions, and a mountain weather forecast. San Miguel County will do away with its mask mandate next week as public health shifts toward more individual responsibility in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Of course, this doesn't indicate that there's no danger of COVID. Um, At this point, we're confident in folks' personal capabilities to protect themselves and protect others and confident in the tools that we have at our fingertips, including vaccines, those great booster doses that have been boosting immunity even for Omicron infection, against Omicron infection. And of course, masks continue to be advised um, whenever interacting with folks outside of your own household. That's Lindsay Mills, public information consultant for San Miguel County, speaking on KOTO on Thursday. According to Mills, the decision to lift the mask mandate is based on a number of metrics. For one, while case numbers aren't so different than they were when the mask mandate was reinstated in the fall, hospital capacity is in a much better place. It was a Delta variant wave when we brought the mask requirement on, and currently it's an Omicron wave. And the severity of disease between those two affected hospital capacity in a very different way. Um, The Delta variant presented severe symptoms in folks that were infected and resulted in very, very low levels of hospital capacity that was available. Whereas Omicron, while it hit hard and fast and infected at a way more rapid rate, the ratio of those hospitalized to those infected was much lower. So hospitals were able to regain capacity to accommodate transfers and folks that needed critical care, ICU beds, and all of that attention that comes with it. She adds roughly 15% of San Miguel County has been infected with Omicron over the past month and nearly 85% of the county is fully vaccinated. So that is a fairly high level of immunity. So all of these factors combined give us ideally at least a month, maybe two, maybe three months bridge to what we see as warmer months. COVID spread has proven to be less severe during the warmer summer months. But even with the lift of the mask mandate, Mills emphasizes there are still places where masks will be required. That includes healthcare and emergency medical settings, public transportation, including the gondola, jails, and any businesses that choose to require masks. Per Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidance, masks are also still required between days 5 and 10 after an individual tests positive for COVID. Masks are still required after your symptoms have resolved until day 11. Um, and we advise that you avoid public spaces until day 11 hits of your um, after your onset of symptoms or your positive test result. Please do continue to wear a mask. Um, after those symptoms have resolved until day 11. Public health also still encourages individuals to wear masks while in crowded indoor settings. When you're going, you know, out to dine or out to the bars or to a public event um, and it's indoors in a potentially poorly ventilated area, that's a crowded indoor space. 
presumably. Um, you know, if you're within six feet of someone outside of your household, that is potentially a crowded indoor space. Um, and we definitely encourage that everybody continue to wear well-fitted, high-quality masks whenever indoors outside of their own private space. Mills notes the pandemic is not over. But the role of public health is shifting. There is a role that public health plays in guiding the community and protecting folks from this pandemic. But the reality is, and I believe we've all accepted this, that COVID is going to be with us for the long haul. And that we have enough confidence in the tools that we can employ as individuals and enough trust in our community and our residents and our visitors to protect themselves and one another from potential severe infection, hospitalization, or death due to COVID-19. San Miguel County's mask mandate will expire on Wednesday, February 9th. Drive by on the spur, and you can see it. The buildings are taking shape. Momentum is picking up on the Sunnyside Project. Construction has been underway for several months on the hillside spot along the Telluride Valley floor. The Sunnyside Committee, composed of representatives from the two government bodies developing the affordable housing, the town of Telluride and San Miguel County, met on Thursday to begin making some of the final decisions for the 30-unit project. The development is a mix of tiny homes, townhomes, and apartments, all for rent. Telluride Program Director Lance McDonald began the meeting with an update on construction. Supply chain and labor delays, he notes, have had impacts. Initially, the plan was to finish the construction in May, with occupants moving in around June. Now, McDonald says, unofficial projections are that things will finish later. We're hoping to have the tiny homes and the townhomes completed in June, in mid-June, hopefully, but that the apartment buildings will be after that, maybe up to eight weeks. The next question that follows is how and when to decide which people will get to move in. For Telluride Town Council member Geneva Seanette, sooner is better. I recognize that we don't know the exact move-in date, so that's going to be like a moving target anyway, but I think it's really important that we just do one lottery and that we do it sooner rather than later so that just everybody can not have to go through that emotional town holding of the breath with the lottery twice. Telluride Mayor Delaney Young adds a problem in the past has been housing lotteries occurring around off-season. We live in a place that off-season does technically turn into a break time for those people who do live and work here. So that's part of the reason that we need to try to decide as soon as possible and move quickly. The one thing that we can do is have an extended period of time for an application submittal so that it overlaps with high time and off season to give people more time. County Planning Director Kay Simonson also notes it's important to ensure the development construction can meet whatever deadline they set for move-in. I'd rather have units done sooner and ready for occupancy, but not occupied, than to have people suddenly you know, out of their leases and not ready to move in. The committee didn't reach any final decisions around the timing of move-in and unit allocation. During Thursday's meeting, the committee also discussed the latest proposals for the rents, which vary for each unit type and depending on income. The lowest price is a one-bedroom for roughly $1,200 per month. The highest is a four-bedroom for about $2,240 per month. But those prices aren't set in stone. The committee wants to incorporate utilities into the monthly rent 
and explore different options to redistribute the price burden across the units. Mayor Young also wants some longer-term considerations. I'm hearing more and more at meetings lately that people are bracing for whatever this next recession is going to be. And I would like you to try to incorporate that idea into what happens if we can't raise rents for a year or two, because I think that that is a true reality that we're going to need to face. McDonald plans to come up with different pricing scenarios for the committee to continue to consider. One decision the committee did make on Thursday was to allow one pet per unit. The exact date for when people will start living in the region's newest affordable housing is still up in the air. But with construction and meetings rolling along, Sunnyside's opening is getting closer by the day. Can a non-qualified person own a deed-restricted home to rent to local employees? That's the question the San Miguel County Board of Commissioners discussed this week after the San Miguel Regional Housing Authority postponed making a decision on such a request at their most recent meeting. We foresee the potential for this situation occurring more and more as many of our local businesses are struggling to find and retain employees that they would wish to purchase or own uh, deed-restricted units, even if they are not technically a qualified owner but then wanting to rent those to employees that would qualify. That's County Manager Mike Bordonia briefing the BOCC this week. Bordonia says County Planning Director Kay Simonson did further research and found there's the potential for about 50 units in the Lawson subdivision where that could occur. Um, Most of those are unbuilt units. But Simonson adds there's another potential option. You could also potentially see business owners attempting to buy already built units and asking that the deed restriction be modified. So, you know, there isn't necessarily a known number of where and how these might occur. You know, it could have a change in the character of the developments when you have a shift in um, you know, ownership uh, models. Commissioner Lance Waring says he's received a lot of comments from his neighbors in Lawson Hill. None of my constituents or neighbors out there are in favor of residential housing as described being potentially owned by a business for various reasons, all of which makes sense to me. Commissioner Hillary Cooper feels similarly. I have no interest in allowing non-qualified people to purchase existing deed-restricted units. But Cooper adds she is interested in modifying codes to incentivize the construction of new units that may not have been built otherwise for qualified employees. We may start to hear uh, exceptions on the built, uh, to build units, in which case, um, let's look at that. Because like I said, I, I think our goal needs to be to really look at our land use codes, our building codes, our deed restrictions, and if we're uh, getting in the way of um, you know, development of deed restricted units, then we should do what we can to get out of the way. Commissioner Chris Holstrom agrees with both Waring and Cooper that non-qualified people should not be able to purchase deed-restricted units to rent to local employees. Bordonia notes the decision is not binding, but will allow for more consistency in decision-making for processing exemption requests moving forward. Navigating and adapting to climate change will be a long, tough process. So, a plan is all but essential. 
Last year, the town of Telluride began updating its climate action plan, which was developed in 2014. This week, Karen Guglielmone, Town Environmental and Engineering Division Manager, updated Town Council on the update. Last August, Guglielmone explains, Town adopted a goal to decrease its 2020 emissions by 70 percent by 2030 and get to carbon neutral by 2040. Our consultants didn't think we'd quite get to carbon neutral. They do still think we'll need to do offsets to make that happen. They feel pretty confident we can get to 95% of a decrease in greenhouse gases. Guglielmone acknowledges it's an ambitious goal. That's 10 years faster than you'll see the regional plans and other plans around the, around the world, actually. But it's also achievable based on the modeling that has taken place. So the goal of the cap isn't necessarily to say how exactly each step goes. The goal is to say, where are we going and what what can we do to get there? What can we explore? What possible strategies and tasks and actions can we explore that will move us forward? Those strategies, Guglielmone says, will require a mix of reducing and avoiding emissions, replacing fossil fuels with renewable energy, sequestering emissions in trees and soil, and purchasing carbon offsets. The Climate Action Plan draft outlines a range of such strategies, including funding community solar projects, expanding transit options, increasing local composting opportunities, and growing regional electric vehicle infrastructure. Council was largely supportive of the update draft, but wants more data for the impact of each strategy. Guglielmone notes one of the first actions after the plan is approved will be a more detailed analysis to aid in implementation. So we could figure out uh, which are the low-hanging fruit or which where we would get the biggest bang for the buck, which has the most impact. Guglielmone aims for town council to approve and adopt the climate action plan update in April. The Lone Cone Library in Norwood is now renting out cross-country ski equipment. The fleet has been assembled and donated by the Norwood Nordic Association. Library patrons will be able to check out skis, boots, and poles for up to four days. In a press release, the Nordic Association notes supply chain issues have slowed the launch of the program and limited the ski selection, and at the moment there are only adult sizes. But the association adds it aims to continue to build out the ski fleet as supply improves and hopes to add a kids' fleet in the coming years. The Norwood Nordic Association notes the new Lone Cone Library cross-country ski rental program was made possible by grants from the Lone Cone Legacy Trust, Telluride Foundation, San Miguel County, and donations from Norwood Nordic Association members. Camp V is one of several recent recipients of a community revitalization grant from Colorado Creative Industries, a division of the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade. Jody Wright, co-founder of the 120-acre redeveloped space on a former mining community just west of Natarita, says the $2 million grant will allow them to finish core spaces in the West End that will, quote, bring community together and create job opportunities today and into the future. Credible threats of violence from a man who allegedly sent out an 800-page manifesto full of violent fantasies involving schools and universities prompted an hours-long standoff on Boulder's University Hill Tuesday 
and led to the evacuation of the area's elementary school. KGNU's Shannon Young has more. Investigators are going through an 800-page manifesto allegedly sent by a man behind an hours-long standoff on University Hill Tuesday. Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold said the suspect made explicit threats of violence in the document, linked from an email sent Monday, January 31st. We identified thousands of references to violence, stating things such as killing, death, murder, shootings, bombs, schoolyard massacre. Chief Harold said the Boulder Regional SWAT was activated Tuesday morning and set up a perimeter outside of the suspect's location. This coincided with morning drop-off at University Hill Elementary School on 16th and Broadway. Pediatrician Dr. Honora Burnett had just left her son at school and witnessed something out of the ordinary. They like rang a whistle and then everyone ran into the school really quickly and I thought maybe it was just happening because it was cold. But then when we were walking home, we got a text message that they were on lockdown. The text message went out to all Unihill parents, advising that the school had been placed on a, quote, secure lockout. Boulder Valley School District Chief Communications Officer Randy Barber explains what that means. Our doors are locked on the outside. Uh, we make sure that students and, and staff are brought inside. And, and typically, learning then continues as normal throughout the day. Within less than an hour, officials decided to evacuate the school, and an automated voice message went out to the cell phones of Unihill parents. BDSD has implemented an evacuation of University Hill Elementary due to police activity. According to the Boulder Police Department, there is a barricaded individual in the neighborhood near the school who has made threats towards University Hill Elementary previously. As a precautionary measure, we are in the process of evacuating students and relocating them to a reunification point away from the school. Shortly thereafter, residents at dozens of homes on the hill were advised to shelter in place. The standoff lasted until around midday. Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold identified the suspect responsible for the threats as 31-year-old Matthew Christopher Harris and confirmed a prior encounter with him. We have had contact with this male suspect uh, approximately in October. We're still reviewing our reports from that incident. The Associated Press reports Harris is a former philosophy instructor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Police Chief Harold said while the investigation extends beyond Colorado, the manifesto contained specific references to Boulder University and schoolyard settings. The suspect had attempted to purchase a firearm in Jefferson County in November, but was denied due to past behavior, according to Boulder District Attorney Michael Doherty. Based on a protection order that was issued in the state of California, there was a, a national database that included a provision that he was not allowed to purchase or possess a firearm. Based on that, we believe at this point, and again, it's early in the investigation, that that was the basis for the denial when he attempted to purchase the firearm in early November. No injuries or casualties resulted from Tuesday morning standoff on the hill. The evacuation from Uni Hill Elementary appeared to be a logistically smooth operation involving dozens of calm BVSD staff. BVSD Communications Chief Randy Barber said it was the result of extensive training and planning. All of our, our leadership and our, our staff know, you know what to do during an emergency. And so uh, when we activated the evacuation, uh, immediately one of the conversations is with our bus drivers. They were just finishing their morning routes, and so we were able to divert them over to the school. 
um, prepare the students and load them onto buses. And, you know, within a relatively short amount of time, you know, they were transported safely from the school to the uh, BBSD Education Center. While relieved to pick up her son, University Hill parent Dr. Anora Burnett had mixed feelings about witnessing the process. I think there's two sides of it. I'm so happy that it's going so smoothly, and it also makes me so sad that they've had to put so much thought into how to evacuate students safely. For now, today's snow day is providing many with a needed pause with which to reflect on an uncomfortably close brush with what could have been a very dangerous situation. With help from Alexis Kenyon and Rosanna Longobetter, I'm Shannon Young for KGNU. The leader of the Colorado State Senate is resigning to take a job at the Pentagon. KOTO Scott Franz has more. Leroy Garcia was the first Latino Senate president in state history. The Pueblo Democrat says he'll step down from the legislature on February 23rd to take a job supporting Navy operations from the Pentagon. Garcia is a Marine Corps veteran who served in Iraq in 2003. He was elected to the Senate in 2014 and became president when Democrats took control in 2018. They will have to vote on Garcia's replacement. Steve Finberg of Boulder is the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate. In a statement, he says that Garcia's early resignation is a, quote, great loss for Colorado, but a huge gain for our country. I'm Scott Franz at the state capitol. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight, with a low around zero degrees and wind chill values as low as negative 15 degrees. Friday, expect sunny skies with a high around freezing and wind chill as low as negative 10 degrees. Friday night should be mostly clear with a low around 10 degrees. Saturday calls for sunny skies with a high around 40 degrees. Saturday night should be mostly clear with a low around 10 degrees. This has been the news for Thursday, February 3rd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hi, my name is Robin, and I work as the Victims Advocate Coordinator at the San Miguel Resource Center. We support survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and other crimes. In 2021, we helped 128 domestic violence survivors and 18 sexual assault survivors in San Miguel County and the west end of Montrose County. We have a few important announcements. TLC Week, which stands for Teens, Love, and Consent, begins at Telluride High School on Monday, February 7th. We will be hosting several workshops throughout the week covering healthy relationships, boundaries, consent, and other important topics. We are hosting a virtual discussion for parents on Wednesday, February 9th from 3.30 to 4.30 to provide insight into the conversations we're having and to give tips and tricks to parents with high school-aged kids. We are also hosting another 40-hour victim advocate training. The training will be entirely virtual, occurring every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. via Zoom. The training begins on February 22nd and ends March 10th. This course covers a wide variety of topics, including domestic violence, sexual assault, advocacy skills, law enforcement, trauma and mental health, and cultural considerations. This is a wonderful and free opportunity that will equip you with invaluable interpersonal and professional skills. Upon completion, you will be officially a victim advocate in the state of Colorado and will have the option to volunteer at San Miguel Resource Center. We're always looking to grow our volunteer community and we're excited for you to join. 
If you're interested, please email Robin at advocates, A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E-S, at smrcco.org, or call us at 970-728-5660. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.